of God's Word. This morning we're turning to the Gospel of John, and we'll be reading from John 13, the first 17 verses. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would now open the mouth of your servant, Pastor Andrew, and fill it with your wisdom and knowledge so that he may proclaim your word in all its purity. Prepare our hearts to receive it, to understand it, to preserve it. Write your word, as it were, on the tablets of our hearts and give us not only the desire, but also the strength to walk in all its ways to the praise of your name and to the edification of your church. Gracious Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Feels like it's been a month since uh, I preached. Oh, wait, it has. Uh, it's an unusual stretch, you know, for, for Christ Church, for, for me um, personally. But uh, I, I trust it was as good for you as it was for me. It's just been such an encouraging, challenging month to, to think about 
what it means to, to be missional, what it means to, in, in every aspect of our life, to be pushing out into mission. Uh, I've been encouraged by, by folks who are seeing the world differently at different places and, and how they can speak and share with us. But there is also a sense when we hear all those things that uh, there's a weightiness to it. I, you know, personally, for me, there's, there's been a weighty start to the year. Some of it has to do with just sickness and really dire situations that people that are either connected to Christ Church or uh, connected to me are going through. I, I felt the weightiness of, il- of illness, of job situations, all sorts of uh, different things. Uh, of course, the, the Michigan State incident or situation, whatever you want to call it, uh, has elicited or unearthed a, a weightiness that is always there for many people. And I, I know this because I've heard from a number of you and just asking, are you paying attention to this? Are you hearing what is being said? Uh, these are realities that exist in this world, uh, exist within this church. Uh, you know, there is this deep institutional disappointment, all of these different things. And there's there's just a weightiness, and you put those things together, you say, okay, mission, you know, God is, is calling us to be his people in this world, and then you take this weightiness of our own situation, our own brokenness, when we look into our heart, we just had a time of confession, and, you know, if we're honest, we, we see all of these things, we take that mixture, and we say, how, Lord? You know, how is this going to happen? How, how are we a ragtag group of people who are feeling so acutely the brokenness of the world around us, the brokenness that emanates from our own lives? How are we going to move forward and be your people in this world, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our broader communities, in the worldwide stage? How are we going to be that people. And that's why I love this upper room discourse. Because in this upper room discourse, you have a very similar thing. Uh, Jesus is getting ready in, in the next hour to culminate his mission uh, to the world. He is going to go to the cross. He is going to uh, take on all of the forces of evil uh, at the, the most acute level. He is going to rise and then he is going to physically leave the earth and he is going to give the disciples the mission to, to carry on. He is going to give them the mission in their homes, in their communities, in their neighborhoods, on the worldwide stage to carry on. And you know what? It's a ragtag group of people. You know, in, in that room, you have somebody that will betray him. You have somebody who will deny him. You have people, people like Philip and Nathaniel who voice questions of confusion. Uh, Th- Thomas will doubt him. There are just so many, uh, you know, all of them are going to scatter, right? A- and so you see that being a disciple 
doesn't mean that we look at our own strength and our own perfection, but Jesus comes to us in the middle of our weakness and he calls us to follow him. He calls us uh, to be these people that are on mission. So as we study this, the, the next several weeks, we're going to be walking through this upper room discourse, Jesus's words to an imperfect community. Uh, as, as we do this, I, I hope that there is a sense of encouragement for you. I hope that there is a, a, a sense that you say, okay, we have this big calling, but we also have a big God who equips us, and that's where we want to go as, as we move through it. So this morning, I want to take this sort of opening salvo. This is actually not heavy in terms of teaching. Uh, that kind of, you know, starts in, in 1331. But here we see Jesus teaching by action, right? Uh, as he washes the disciples' feet. We sung about some of the humility of the Savior, that the, the, the Lord of all would kneel in humility and wash our feet. What a mystery this is. So let's see what it means for us today, and we're going to actually walk backwards through the passage. So let's just start where we ended, verse 17. And I cut it off at verse 17 because I, I want to start there, and we're going to talk about the betrayal aspect that Jesus alludes to in 18 and following next week. So verse 17 Jesus said very clearly in indicative fashion, uh, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Uh, Jesus is saying that we are, to a certain extent, what we do. It is very important. We, we cannot just talk about where our hearts are. We are focused on our actions, you know, and there is... Uh, a sense in which what we do, we will be accountable for. Now, again, you know, I'm not saying salvation by works here. I think you'll get that a as we go through. Uh, but we, we cannot dismiss doing an action as something that's unimportant uh, in light of the fact that Jesus died for us. Jesus is very clear here. He says, you are to imitate me. I already gave you verse 17. Then if you look at uh, verse 14, he says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. He is bearing, being very specific here about an action that we are to do as we follow Jesus. Now, is he specifically talking about foot washing? Is he instituting foot washing here as another sacrament of the church? Uh, I would say no. Foot washing here is emblematic of the idea of Jesus being willing to empty himself, which we'll talk about in a minute, and to serve somebody else. So he's primarily talking about service here, finding ways to serve. He's not making this a sacrament. Part of the reason why we know this is uh, he, he washes uh, Judas's feet, right? Judas is not part of the kingdom. As far as we can tell, uh, sacraments are something that are for the people of God. They, they are not for the broader community. And, and in washing Judas's feet, 
Jesus signals to us that he is speaking of something broader here than a specific sort of sacramental dispensation that it would be washing Jesus' feet. He's talking about serving. So we have two things. We have imitate and, you know, just note as well, sidelight, when Jesus says this, he says, I am your teacher and your Lord. You know, a lot of folks, and some of you may be in this, and you may say, Jesus is a really good person, you know, and he has a lot of wise things to say. He's a good teacher. But, but Jesus makes claims far above that, you know. So when he's calling us to imitate, he's doing that from a position of authority. He's saying, I am your teacher, but I am also your Lord. You know, it is not optional to just sort of sort through my teachings and decide, you know, what you like and what you don't like. I am your Lord. I am your authority. I am the one who sort of calls the shots for what your life is to look like. And when he says, imitate me, he is being very specific about what our lives ought to look like. So what ought they to look like? Imitate me in service. Imitate me in stripping ourselves of our rights and serve. The situation, of course, Jesus and his disciples walk into the upper room. We don't know exactly, uh, you know, when this was, whether this was the night before Passover or this was actually the Passover evening. If you go through the harmony of the Gospels, you realize that there's some questions with that. I would probably lean towards Jesus uh, celebrating a separate Passover meal with his disciples the night before. Uh, there was a, a special organization, you know, for this to happen. And as such, there were probably no servants there. Uh, they, were, they were coming aside in a particular way to celebrate this Passover meal, which was looking forward uh, you know, all the symbolism of Jesus being the Passover lamb who was crucified. So there's no servants there. And, uh, you know, when they walk in, there's nobody who would do the, the ordinary menial task of washing their feet. I think most of you are familiar with, you know, sort of the sandals that they wore and the dresses or whatever they wore, you know, as they walked through. And, and dusty, not asphalt, all of these things. And so somebody would have to do the job of, of washing their feet at that time, and, and nobody did it. Uh, any of the disciples could have done it at any time. They could have said, hey, this would be a great thing to do. And so eventually Jesus uh, takes up the basin, the towel, and he kneels in humility, and he washes their feet. He puts aside his rights. You know, he puts aside whatever agenda he could have had at that particular time to serve very tangibly. And this is what he calls us to imitate. You know, to put aside our rights, to put aside whatever agenda we might have with our time, with our money, you know, with our relationships, all of these different things, to put that aside to do tangible acts of service. Now, I know, you know, when we start to roll this out in terms of application and we say, all right, what does that look like in my life as ah, a middle-aged man, you know, that uh, 
uh, just sounds wrong, you know. But, you know, what does it look like in my situation very specifically, you know, to working for the church, to coming home? You know, I can, I can serve my wife. You know, I'm, I'm tired at the end of a day. I've been talking to people often most of the day, and, you know, I don't really want to hear about the problems of the home. Uh, but I can serve my wife by listening. I can serve my wife by saying, you know, let me take care of the dishes. You did all of the work in, you know, putting this meal together, which was wonderful, by the way, and being thankful. And, and let me serve very tangibly. I think, kids, you can see this. You know, you live in a home where your parents serve you in different ways, by going to work, by keeping a home, whatever it is in your particular situation. So, kids, how do you serve your parents? You know, maybe it's just very practically, you know, picking up the things that you lay down, not expecting the maid service to kick in. You know, but we serve, we serve very practically, very tangibly. I know uh, a number of the ladies have been involved in this neighboring study. Think about the elderly in your community. You know, and if you, you know, how do you serve them this morning? Very tangibly, what could you do? You could go shovel somebody's driveway. You could, you know, clean off somebody's car. You, you could do things that serve those in your community that would bless them. You can, uh, you know, stand up for those who have been victimized. You can serve in ways that may involve listening. It may involve uh, you know, fighting for justice as well as mercy. There are lots of different ways that we serve. We serve our missionaries. We serve them by praying for them. We serve them by encouraging them, sending them care packages, all of these different things. The point is, there is a tangibility to our service that Jesus exemplifies for us, and we need to be asking ourselves, what does that look like in my life? You know, how am I, you know, ex you know, imitating my Savior in the way that I live my life tangibly? Some of you, uh, our friend Jack Miller, who we spent last year with in terms of our, um, terms of our devotional, tells a story about one time when he was uh, seeing an old lady uh, being taunted by a group of, you know, 15, 16-year-old young hooligans. Uh, they were throwing some stones at her. They were calling her names. And he said, this is my opportunity to serve this old lady. And so he marched up. Jack Miller was a small guy. Some people have said he looks like Mr. Magoo. Uh, but uh, he, uh, you know, he was unafraid, at least in the moment, uh, and he marched up to this uh, group of hooligans and he said, you need to respect your elders. You know, you need to stop throwing stones. You need to stop calling names. Aren't you familiar with the fifth commandment? And they said, no, actually, we're not. <laughs> and uh, so he proceeded to tell them the fifth commandment. But he risked his own health and safety to serve that old lady. And he ended by saying, I expect you all to be in church on Sunday morning, when he, in fact, did not er really expect them to be in church. So where is our service? Now, we don't want to stop there, though, do we? 
I, I feel like, you know, in some senses, and, and Miller reflects on this. He said, you know, I came out of that situation, and on the one hand, I recognized the rightness of what I did. I recognized the rightness of going up and, and, and engaging those people and serving that old lady. But I was left unhappy because I was so focused on the law at that point, and I wasn't inhabiting the gospel. And if we stopped right here, we, we could all walk out. You know, Matthew 23, 4 says the Pharisees you know, tied these heavy burdens and laid them on the people. And, and if all that we had from Jesus was do as I do, you know, imitate me, go out and humble yourself and serve, we would be in that very similar situation of, of feeling the law and no gospel. So we need to push a little bit deeper, and the good news is this text does this because it not only confronts us with what we are to do, but it also asks us what we are to believe while we are doing this, what we are to believe while we are doing this. And we can see this in two particular ways. For, for Jesus, he is telling us a story here, right, through his actions. He's not teaching so much with his words, but he's telling us a story through his actions. And what he's saying is, my gospel, my kingdom is an inside-out, upside-down kingdom where the way up is the way down, the way down is the way up. It is so completely different than anything that you have been expecting. Strength is displayed in service. You know, royal robes are gained through disrobing. Victory is achieved by emptying yourself and losing in the eyes of the world. And Jesus gives us this picture. You know, how is it that he shows his majesty here? He does it by disrobing. You know, we, we look at Jesus and we say, he had every right to expect. He was the rabbi. He was the teacher. He had every right to expect that one of his disciples would be the ones to wash his feet. But he shows us that there is a greater glory, that there is a, a, a truer truth, that there is something deeper here as he is the one who disrobes, takes up the basin and the towel and washes the feet. We see a true majesty, something that the world doesn't know, something that is very different. And, and this is, you know, the problem, right? You know, as Satan goes forward, he thinks he achieves the victory over Jesus when Jesus, you know, in just a few hours will once again be naked and, and he will be hanging on the cross and, and his life's blood will be seeping out and his, and his breath will be expiring. Satan thinks that he has won a great victory because he is thinking, you know, victory means, you know, power, might, you know, crushing. But Jesus believes something deeper. He believes that being crushed willingly is what is going to lead to victory. He believes that in emptying oneself, 
And that is a, it's a great challenge for us. Because, you see, what we do has to be motivated, has to be informed by what we believe about what's true in the world. And Jesus believes something that is counterintuitive. You can see that it's counterintuitive just because of Peter. Now, it says, you know, Jesus was going around. He was washing the disciples' feet. And then he comes to Peter, right? And what does Peter say? No, you're not going to wash my feet. Uh, You know, what does Peter believe? What does he believe about the way forward? He, He believes power. Might. How do we know this? Well, we know it from places like Mark 8. When Jesus starts talking about his suffering and death, what does Peter say to him? Peter says, never. You're never going to suffer like this. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You do not understand the deeper things of God, right? What happens when, uh, you know, even in the garden, now fast forward a little bit, in the garden when the soldiers come out to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? (laughs) Pulls a sword and lops off an ear. Peter is struggling with this concept. And Peter is so much like us because we just intuitively believe that it is strength that is going to achieve it. We, we, you know, that is going to achieve the victory, that it is strength. And so we, we are, you know, we just fight against, we are repelled by this idea of service, even when it comes to us. You know, Peter says, you can't wash my feet. Well, Jesus says, look, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. You know, and, and part of what we struggle with, you know, even in our own lives, even in our relationship to Jesus, is we're holding on to our ideas of strength. You know, and we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want the vulnerability of the Savior who we love at our dirty feet. You know, I, I, I feel that. I can really identify with Peter here. And I come to my own personal confession day in and day out. I've got dirty feet. A- and I don't want the Savior there. I, I don't want him in my grime and in my grit and in my grunge. But what am I believing? I'm believing that it's my righteousness that attracts the Savior. I'm believing that if I can be moral upstanding, if I, I believe if I can work harder, I believe that if I can do more than the next guy, then Jesus will love me. If I can do the things that he has called me to do. And, and what Jesus and Peter here are playing out is the story that says, no, you know, your, your cleanliness is as the Savior draws near to your grime, and he tenderly takes your feet in his hands and unwashes them. Do you believe it? It's hard, and it, it's really hard, and, and it's something that we have to get adjusted to, you know, sometimes daily. We have to, you know, reset the compass to the gospel, because this is the gospel. You know, and, and sometimes you'll find that you'll be running 
in a soft legalism or a moralism for a week or two or a month or two or a year or two. And suddenly you'll realize, like, look at I, I don't want Jesus washing my feet. I don't want him in the midst of my mess. But that's also when we realize by God's grace that we're living apart from the gospel. And it changes. Now, incidentally, it changes the way that we do his commandments, right? Jack Miller goes on to tell in this story, he says, my real problem was is that I did right by the old lady. I did right by stepping up and, and bringing the law down on those kids, but I did wrong by those boys. You know, I didn't go to them with the type of humility that says, you know what, I was once just like you. A and I struggle with the same kind of brokenness that you struggle with. And if you could only see the God that I see, the one who takes dirty, grimy feet into his own hands and washes them, I think you'd feel different about how you treat those kids. He hit them with the law and not the gospel, partially because he says at that time, I wasn't believing the gospel. I wasn't living it deep into my heart. Jesus wasn't washing one more level to go down and we see it in Jesus we see what he believed but there is a foundation for Jesus that we those of us who know Christ as our Lord and Savior there is a foundation that we can sort of latch on to and lead from and that is this look at verse 3 it's really amazing during supper, the devil had already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. You know, what, what was the bedrock for the Savior? It was his absolute knowledge of the love of, of God that he had for him. Now, you say, well, that's, that's a given. He's Jesus. I mean, he's the second person of the Trinity. Of course he knows that the Father loves him. And I'll say, yes, of course, that's true. But, you know, let's not also forget that Jesus lives out his humanity, you know, and he grew in that knowledge as a human of the love of the Father. Luke 2, verse 40 says, that as a young child, he grew in stature, he grew in wisdom, he grew in knowledge of the Lord. There was a development to him. Why do you think that Jesus was out cultivating the relationship with his father, listening to him early in the morning, studying the Torah, showing up at synagogues? Why was he doing this? Because he knew in his humanity he needed to hear from the father. If I'm going to believe the right things about the gospel, if I'm going to do the right actions that portray the gospel, I need to know the Father. And I need to know his heart for me. I need to know his love. I need to know his acceptance. And I would just posit, and you can check me if I'm wrong, you know, some of our greatest struggles as Christians come exactly here we don't know experientially 
the love of the Father. We don't know his smile. We don't know his heart for us. We don't hear when he rejoices over us with singing. We don't rest in his loving arms like a weaned child with his mother, just comfortable because we know the love that the parent has for us. Jesus knows it. And he invites us to know it as well. You know, we are given so many promises in the scripture. I've just run through three or four of them. But look at there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One of Satan's biggest ploys in order to get us to live legalistically, in order to live, a, live apart from the gospel or just live full of license, is to make us feel like the Father doesn't love us. How could he? We're so sinful. Satan is so craftily anti-gospel. You know, and he wants to say, condemnation. God couldn't love you. But Jesus knows in his person the love of the Father. He knows the plan of the Father. You know, so person, plan. He knows the path that it's going to take. The plan to redeem the people, the path that lies through the cross. But he also knows the promise that he is going to be in glory. You see that now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. Verse 31, 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him all at once. Do you know? And one of the greatest identity markers that we have as Christians is when we come forward and we take the bread and we take the wine. You know, in it, by faith, in Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are saying, I know the love of the Father. I know whom I believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which he has committed until that day. You know, we are saying that we know the love of the Father. And when you know that, it changes everything. Because what do you have to fear? We have absolutely nothing to fear. If God loves you, then you know that your life as you face it right now is plan A. We struggle with this sometimes, right? This, everything seems to be going wrong. You know, somehow God lost control and my life is now on track plan B or plan C or all of these different things. But when we begin to feel that way, we've lost sight of the love of God. A and we, we believe. So how is it that people went to their death as martyrs? How is it that, you know, people graduating from Princeton Seminary in the 1700s would pack their stuff in coffins to go to Africa? Because they knew the love of the Father. You see, when, when we know that, like Jesus knew it, it really, it, it changes everything. And so that's the invitation. Do I want you to do? For sure. Does God want you to do? Do I want you to believe right? Yeah, I do. But at the heart of it, 
is knowing God, knowing the love of the Father, allowing him to pursue you. And break through the shame, break through the guilt, break through all of that brokenness and say, I love you. And for you to be able to receive it. We've already read a portion of Ephesians 3 this morning. But that's what Paul prays for. You know, when he, when he prays for the Ephesian church that they could carry out mission, that they would be strong, he says, this is why I bow the knees before my Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in, the, in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. How is that going to happen? Right? How is that going to be happened? That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. May you know this morning and in the same way that Jesus is inviting us, may we know the love of the Father. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this word. It meets us on so many levels, and we ask uh, that it would continue to meet us in the moments following. Lord, help us now as we prepare to come to the table. May we be fed by your hand. Uh, may your spirit be active among us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.